Today's special socially democratic episode from the 2023 ALP Fringe is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. And we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And if you want to create change in your community in 2023, then hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need support with a legal issue, it can feel really daunting. And that's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping guiding clients with their legal needs. They're here to help you when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases, and wills and estates planning. As Australia's leading planner for law firm, they have the local knowledge and the national network with experience that you can count on. And to find out more, simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, the lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, simply go to their website, swiftfoxcrm.com, to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And this is a special episode of Socially Democratic because we are live at the 2023 ALP National Conference here in Brisbane as part of the Fringe program. And we're doing uh, a episode uh, in front of an audience uh, with a panel of wonderful trade union leaders, starting with Michelle O'Neill, who is the national president of the ACTU, and Michael Kane, who's the national secretary of the Transport Workers Union. So looking forward to speaking with those guys uh, in front of our uh, wonderful audience here in Brisbane. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And when you're done listening to the show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to the episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. All right, let's get to today's episode. Um, okay, we are, actually before we start, has anyone ever actually listened to Socially Democratic before? Who's our regular listeners? Okay, that's about it. That's nice. exactly how many people listen to the show, so it's great. To be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. We should all meet up afterwards and have a beer. I appreciate that. For those of you who haven't before, um, Socially Democratic is a centre-left uh, podcast. It is out every Friday and we sort of talk about campaigns and issues uh, of the day from both at home and abroad and we're doing uh, two shows as a part of the Fringe so we want to um, thank you for all coming today and being a part of our podcast family. Um, uh, before we begin, can I... Uh, uh, actually, no, sorry, I'm going to start exactly how I normally start every podcast. Why change? We're taping this one on a Thursday uh, on the lands of the uh, Turrbal and Yagara peoples. And before we kick off this episode, can I uh, acknowledge that we're gathering on the lands of these peoples and we want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and reaffirm that uh, this was and always will be Aboriginal lands. I can also welcome our wonderful audience that has joined us for our first Socially Democratic podcast as a part of the 2023 ALP National Conference 
uh, Fringe program, please give yourselves a round of applause. Welcome. <laughs> nice one. Okay, um, our first guest uh, is the former National Secretary of the Textiles, Clothing, Footwear Union of Australia, the TCFUA, uh, and is now the president of our peak uh, body that represents unions across the country, the ACTU. Would you please give a warm welcome to a fellow Melbourneian, Michelle O'Neill. Our uh, second guest has been fighting for transport workers for over 20 years uh, and is now the National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union of Australia, and, which is my old union. Uh, would you please welcome Michael Kane? Uh, and what should be making up uh, our troika of trade union leaders um, today's show uh, has been uh, yeah, over nine years uh, working in policy, legal and research uh, in the trade union movement. Uh, is now the National Secretary of the Commonwealth and a public sector union, uh, but is obviously moving an amendment on the floor of conference right now, so can't be here, but she will join us at some stage. So let's just give her a warm welcome anyway. Uh, Mel Donnelly. Okay, so what I want to do today for uh, the show is kind of do a bit of reflection on where the trade union movement has come, uh, sorry, has been after the last nine years of conservative rule in this, in this country. Uh, what are our goals leading into this first term of, the, of this Labor government? And then sort of almost a bit of a kind of a, you know, no uh, idea is a silly idea, chuck them all on the table. Where do we want to take the trade union movement into, into the future? And I want to start uh, with you, uh, Michelle. Um, I want to get a sense of the, where is this, what is the state of the union in 2023 after nine years of conservative rule uh, at a federal level. Um, what are your reflections on that time and how much damage has the conservative done to Australian workplaces in that time? Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here, everybody, and with you, Michael, and hopefully Mel soon. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands we're on to, the Yagara and and terrible people and pay all my respects to their elders past and present and always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I'm sure um, everyone in this room knows that the Australian trade union movement is doing everything we possibly can to make sure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are recognised and have a voice and it's enshrined in our constitution. We're backing in the yes vote in the referendum. Um, Stephen, Look, the, it was a terrible time for working people, the uh, conser successive conservative governments over the last decade. And they really did wreak havoc in all sorts of ways on working people's lives, and we're paying the price of that today. So, of course, we saw over that period of the previous government wages stagnate and then start to dramatically go backwards in real terms. So that basically led us to the crisis we are in now with the cost of living. So really just wages not keeping up, people struggling to get by, never getting ahead in terms of their buying power and having um, the opportunity to be in front of what was happening and then really dramatically falling behind. So when you saw the, start, the uh, interest rates and, of course, inflation go up, working people, um, wages not matching that and the largest decline in real wage growth than we've ever seen. Um, and that practically means people not being able to properly feed themselves and their families. It means people not being able to meet their mortgage repayments, not being able to pay the rent, let alone ever think about being able to plan a holiday with your children or be able to sort of save and get ahead in any way. 
So that was a, a shocking impact. The other thing, of course, is we saw this real rise in insecure work. Uh, and the conservatives like to say that, oh, well, casuals, uh, it's the same as it's always been. But of course, they're misrepresenting what we're talking about. Because what we're talking about is the change in casual work, contract work, gig work, labour hire work, mm. all these ways that work has become more insecure, or part-time work even, but with flexible hours, so you, you're not really in any, sort of in any sort of secure job. And the impact on that is that so many more working Australians now have no access to paid leave, don't even know when they're going to work. So to be able to plan your life particularly if you've got people that are dependent on you, whether it's your children or family members or others, no set rosters, days, and no certainty about how much you're ever going to earn week to week, let alone year to year. So all of that has really created a crisis for people. The other thing is that we've got more people working in multiple jobs today in Australia as a result of all of that than we've ever seen. And not because people are going, oh, yeah, let me work two, three, four jobs, because they have to because they can't make ends meet on one job. Uh, and the social implications of that for people is dramatic. The other thing that we saw, of course, was the ABCC, so the Building and Construction Commission. And what that meant was a set of laws that really demonised one group of workers in the community, suggesting that somehow there was something wrong about these workers and that they needed to have a legislated police force that would control mm -hmm. what happened in their working life, but importantly, control their access to representation. And this is in an industry that's an incredibly dangerous industry. Uh, and so a very um, draconian law that really took away workers' rights to be represented or even um, have a voice when they were being interrogated and investigated. The other, and probably the last thing I'd wrap up to say, is that we just saw a government that was both blind and deaf to what was happening in terms of women at work. So the fact that they sat on that Respect at Work report, that there were, you know, you had the Human Rights, uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner do this world-leading investigation into what was happening with sexual harassment in the workplace, an extraordinary report that set out how serious this was, what this meant in terms of women, mainly women, being harassed and assaulted in the workplace. Uh, and then they did nothing, just nothing, um, and were only forced to eventually respond when, of course, they were confronted with allegations of rape in their own workplace. And then women in Australia taking to the streets. Only then did they even bother to say anything about that report they'd been sitting on for a couple of years and, of course, then failed to implement the vast bulk of the recommendations that would start to make workplaces safer for working women. So that, I could go on, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> but that just gives you a sense of some of the dramatic ways that working people went backwards under the Conservative government. You've painted a pretty bleak picture there for yeah. us. Um, and I, in fact... As you go through that, there's so many things I've actually completely forgotten over those nine years, mm -hmm. um, the, the ABCC. I mean, that was a, they were obsessed with that for such a long time. Um, Michael, if I can turn to you and sort of get a sense from you about your experiences of the union that, uh, that you lead and its members, what you went through over that nine-year period. I know one of the things that the union uh, put a lot of time and effort into was the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal. Um, what impact has that had on road transport when they abolished that um, and the impact it has on its members? 
Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I, I, I my acknowledgement um, to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and also say that we are campaigning like the TWU for this, yes. Um, yeah, look, this, 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 is really, this is really interesting and I think what's important to note is that, of course, road transport touches every one of us in this room. Uh, I'm not going to ask the question because it's, 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 it's much too close to home, but um, I, I don't think there'd be a person in this room um, that at some degree of separation hasn't experienced the sudden tragic loss of someone that they know on our roads. It's life-changing in the worst possible way. And, of course, that's what our members go through every day. That unknowing moment that's in front of them, potentially every minute they're on the road. For themselves, yes, but, of course, it affects everyone on the road. Um, and and that, is, that is really important context because it's easy to forget that this is one industry that intersects in such a deadly way with the rest of our community. And when we get it wrong, or more accurately, when we fail to get it right, then there are people dying and not just transport workers who could be alive. I mean, what's more important than that? Uh, and so um, the context is important. The history is important too. In 2012, the Rudd-Gillard government legislated the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, a standalone body which had the power to set standards for transport workers, truck drivers, in effect. And truck drivers are not just employees. A whole bunch of them are independent contractors. And up until that point, they'd sat outside of the protections that exist for employees. There's no way to move their wage. There was no way to ensure that they had um, the capacity to recover their costs as small businesses but single, single workers. Um, and this tribunal promised to do that and promised to do more. It promised to be able to hold those to account that were reaping the economic benefit from the industry. Not these workers' employers, but the employers of the employers, the major retailers, the miners, the manufacturers, the, the shippers. They're the ones taking the dollars out of the industry and they're the ones that are just imposing contracts on the industry that are literally deadly. So the RSRT was there to deal with those pressures, not on the whim of a government, on the basis of 40 years' worth of empirical evidence. That's academic studies. It's government inquiries. It's coronial inquests. It's judicial determinations. 40 years of it saying that if you don't pay workers well enough, if you put them under pressure in road transport, then they die and the people they interface with every day die as well. So the policy rationale completely established, the federal government acts and the tribunal goes about its work. And then in a fit of 2016 pre-election and despicable conduct, we have Michaelia Cash and Malcolm Turnbull standing in front of a couple of trucks saying that the whole thing had to be brought down. Now, the RSRT was just about to make five orders that would have changed the industry and would have made us all safer and brought stability to the industry in general transport, in ports and wharves, in cash and transit, uh, in waste management. Just about to bring these orders down. One of the orders was a bit controversial. So 
the government decided that it would use it as a pretext to cut down the entire independent tribunal. You know, someone, was, someone was talking earlier today about um, the way that the Conservatives treat our institutions or mistreat them, or show a complete lack of respect for them. Of course, what could have been done is the order could have been changed within the tribunal into a different order. But no, let's make this about politics. The, uh, their own report, which they used and handed up to say they had a report to justify ripping down this tribunal, said that if, if the tribunal had stayed in place, there would have been 28% less, look, fewer truck crashes. That's, that, that's people. That's Australians that are alive today. That's on their heads. That's on their heads. That's what they did. That's how far they're willing to go. Uh, and of course, um, uh, of course, for us, um, the, the 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 test was what happens in those circumstances. And I'll you know, I'll never forget this moment. There's so many great leaders in this room, and thanks for rent a crown T Dubs there. But um, so many so many <laughs> leaders um, of our union in this room. Um, uh, who've made a difference. But I remember that it was, become, it was getting to that point where this political storm, um, it, was, it was on the cusp of looking inevitable that this legislation was going to be pulled down. And I remember one of our long-time activists, Frank Black, um, calling me up, truck driver, owner driver, and saying, Michael, looks like this is going to go down. And I said, I know, mate, I know, I'm so sorry. He said, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to take a delegation down to Canberra and if we have to be there when the thing's pulled down, we have to be there to say we're going to build it back up. You know, that's leadership. That's, that is leadership from our members. And, of course, that's what we did, but maybe we'll deal with that a bit later. Yeah, well, let's, let's turn our attention to uh, the immediate future. And I want to go back to you, Michelle. Obviously, we have um, a new Labor government in Canberra, what are the priorities of the broader trade union movement in this first term? Stephen, how long are we allowed to call it new for? <laughs> Do you think? Do you think we still can? <laughs> I think we can. Um, it still feels new, and partly it feels new because there's a lot happening. Um, it feels fresh as a government. It feels like there's a lot going on. And and I, I want to start by saying for us as unions, the of course the priorities are dealing with the things I started off talking about. So making sure that working people start to see real rises in their wages. Um, working people need wage increases and we need to reverse that trend of wages going backwards in real terms. So that's a really clear priority. The other of course is about jobs becoming more secure because we can't let that drift continue to happen. Because it's not, it's not in working people's interests, it's clearly not in our interest and our family's interests, but it's actually not in the interest of the economy as well. You know, people scratch their head and go, why is consumer confidence down? Well, consumer confidence down is, is down because there's a cost of living crisis and people don't have money in their pocket to spend and they're worried about just dealing with the most basic things. So of course they're not, going out and buying things or making new commitments because they can't afford the bills that are coming in now. So dealing with wages, dealing with making jobs more secure and, uh, and of course, also those issues to do with 
ending violence and harassment against women are really important priorities for us. The other priorities is, is sort of a, a broader... Um, uh, you know, we're commit we believe in justice in the trade union movement. We believe in a fairer and more equal society. So that touches a lot of things, doesn't it, when you think about it? Of course, touches industrial relations. Uh, but it touches a whole lot of other areas, transport policy, as Michael was just talking about. It also, of course, things like climate and how we're responding to the climate crisis, what we're doing in response to migration and uh, the issues around migration in this country. There's so many areas of work that we as representatives of working people know it's important to tackle, that we can't just look at things in isolation. There's so many connections between housing we've been talking about today, between these issues. So um, wages and secure work are, are right up there, but there's there's a lot of things underneath that as well. And, and I'm pleased to say that there's been some pretty um, significant changes in this first 14, 15 months of the Labor government. And, and I'm going to start where the Prime Minister started today about paid family and domestic violence leave and acknowledge the people in the room that spent more than a decade fighting for this. Mm -hmm. So this was about the first bit of industrial relations legislation that went through Parliament when the government change was saying 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave for every worker in the country, not just permanent workers, but casual workers too. That's a life-saving bit of law. Because what we had before that was that people experiencing family and domestic violence so often had to choose between their job or their income or their and their children's safety and lives. An impossible choice. Mm. So I, I really feel like that was something the Australian union movement, any ASU members in here, all credit to you for starting this and then the rest of the union movement getting behind it, um, has led the world in fighting for. And the legislation we have now is starting to ripple around the world because people see how important it is. So starting with that, but then, of course, those big changes that we saw with the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. And it's a long list, but I'm going to just touch on a few of them. So introducing a fairer bargaining system because so many working people were locked out of bargaining, just not able to bargain in a way where we could... Bargaining is about trying to even up collective bargaining, trying to even up power a bit, recognising that often employers have, have a large amount of power and for workers to be able to get a fair deal, to see better wages and conditions, then you need to be able to come together to be able to negotiate. And so the better bargaining elements of the law, things like multi-employer bargaining, are really common in other parts of the world. You wouldn't have thought so by the way that the bosses reacted to this law. But they're standard in so many countries in the world because people understand that there's real benefits when you join together across different enterprises, within different sectors and industries to say, well, we've got a common set of issues that we want to negotiate with the employers about. And I was really proud, I think it was only yesterday morning, to stand with the early childhood educators from the United Workers' Union because the United Workers' Union, the IEU and the AEU were having the very first case in the Fair Work Commission for multi-employer bargaining after those laws went through at the end of last year. And why? Because if you work in a childcare centre and you try and bargain childcare centre by childcare centre, 
then you just don't get anywhere. And you don't get anywhere partly because it's often a small workplace, hard to organise and be in a position to have the support you need to bargain. But of course, we also know that government, the funder, is critical to this. So if you're going to bargain properly, you need the employers in the room, you need the workers in their unions in the room, and you need the government in the room. And that's what that legislation has allowed for. Uh, and that'll be a really important part of valuing women's works differently in those sectors that haven't been able to bargain for bargain before, but in all sectors, just even up that ba bargaining position a bit. Uh, the other things that we saw there that were important were uh, the changes that made uh, job security and gender equality objects of our law. They're now in the Fair Work Act. So when the Fair Work Commission makes decisions, Whatever the decision's about, they've got to think about what does this mean for making jobs more secure and what does this mean for gender equality? Now, they're big concepts, but critical concepts so that we get fairer, better decisions made. We also had important changes in things like being able to um, not just ask for flexible work. This was how bad our law was before. You could put your hand up and say, look, I, I need to work part-time. I've got a care, you know, my elderly parent needs me to care for them. And your right was to ask. And if the employer said no, even if it was unreasonable for them to say no, even if they had no reason to say no at all, you had nowhere to go with that. You couldn't go and ask any sort of independent person to say, hold on a minute. Now, workers have got the right to have those decisions reviewed and, and a fair look at them, uh, a lens put over them to say, hold on a minute, why can't this person? have access to flexible work. Um, and also things like being able to um, fix our pay equity laws. All of these changes, there's such a long list, Stephen, of things that went through as part of that um, uh, first lot of industrial relations changes that are making such fundamental shifts in the sort of um, rights working people have, not in a way that anyone should be frightened of in the... Um, the business community because, you know, if you treat people well, if, if you value their work properly, if you give them the opportunity to get together with other workers and negotiate, if you have better pay and conditions, it actually works for everyone. You know, like, we all know the difference between a good employer and a bad. And, you know, people say, oh, there's shortages of labour. Well, wouldn't you want to be a good one? When you want to have people stay working for you because you're treating them properly. Um, and again, of course, if it leads to better wages and people having more money in their pocket, good for small business and good for the economy. The next raft of things that are really important for us is things that go further looking at the problems to do with insecure work, Stephen. And we th we're really concerned that under the previous government, they changed the definition of what a casual worker was. So unions, some of them in the room, had done great work um, exposing the fact that sometimes you get called casual, but more and more workers were being called casual, and they weren't genuinely casual workers. And if you looked at the work they were doing, they were doing the same sort of rosters, hours, over months, sometimes years and years, but still being treated as casual. And so the courts said, well, that's fair enough. You're right, unions. Um, these people should be treated as permanent workers and have access to leave and entitlements. Previous government didn't like the court agreeing with us and changed the law to say whatever the boss calls you when they first employ you, that's what you are. 
So even if the facts, the reality is that your job has become a permanent job, you can still be treated as a casual with no job security. So um, we think that needs to be fixed. We think there needs to be a fairer, common sense definition of casual. It's, it's a loophole that, um, that is not in anyone's interest. And similarly, similar things happen with contract workers um, and, of course, with gig workers. So workers that are employed in, in platforms where they're, you know, and Michael, I know, is going to speak about this too, is where, where basically workers, ways of, employers have found ways of employing people where they say, you're not really employed. You're not really a worker. Mm. Um, we're going to create a a sham around this where we're going to say you're self-employed even though the reality of those workers' lives is that they're not. They're completely dependent on the boss. Mm. Uh, so those changes that are about making jobs more secure are really something that we, um, we welcome the announcements that have come from Tony Burke and the government about the, the next stage of the laws. We're looking forward to seeing the detail and, and uh, things like labour hire is, is the last one I'll mention being able to make sure that you can't have companies uh, basically restructure them, themselves in a way where they outsource work to another version of themselves simply as a way of driving down paying conditions mm. um, or using labour hire firms to have people do the same job but have one person paid dramatically less than the other. All of these are really deeply unfair. And so they're loopholes that some pretty smart, well-paid lawyers have found in our industrial relations system, and closing them is a really important thing. Before I go to you, Michael, you've obviously both acknowledged that there is a number of uh, people in the room who come from uh, unions as well. I just want to sort of say welcome and thank you very much for joining us in our today's podcast. For the, all the listeners at home, I just want to point out there's at least a 1,000 people in the room right now. <laughs> um, Michael... Um, what are the immediate priorities for uh, the union, the TW, in that transport and logistics area? And in particular, I mean, sort of the final remarks here from Michelle started to touch on uh, the disruptors in transport. And I know that the unions had a reasonably good relationship with some of the bigger, more stable companies like Linfox and Toll over the years, although even when I was a union organiser, there was a couple of Barneys. Uh, but that, you know, that must be a worry for them as well to see these disruptors come in and really undermine some of the, you know, the, the work that you're trying to do in terms of representing those kind of workers. I just want to get a sense of where the priorities are for the TW in this space. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that's true. I, I, I must add right at the outset, the reason that we have good relationships with those companies is because the workforce is so strong and so unionised um, and um, they have no option but to have a good relationship <laughs> with us. Um, that's, that's, that's the nature of of the beast. But the thing is that it doesn't matter how good our relationship is with them. Our job is, and Michelle knows this from, you know, she knows it innately, but from her TCF um, years, we've learned it from the TCF. Um, we've got to have good secure jobs, but good secure jobs um, can only exist when you have stable, sustainable industries. Um, and that, that, is, that is part of our mission. So, um, you know, it's, it's really up to us uh, as a union movement, um, and this is what, um, you know, the, the, the recent and proposed industrial relations go to, it's really up to us as a union movement to save um, the forces of capital from themselves because the forces of capital are so focused on um, their individual profit motives. It's not a criticism, it's just the way the system is. 
um, that it's up to us to take a broader look to figure out how we make our markets sustainable. And of course, in road transport, it's really, really clear what has to happen. You've got the good actors, the good characters in the middle, which are union workers in good union companies. They're a bit like Han Solo and Luke and Leia and Chewie in the garbage compactor on, in Star Wars. You know that scene? Remember that scene where they get thrown in the garbage chute and the walls start coming in and they start coming in? Well, one wall is um, the top of the supply chain. Those reaping the economic benefit, the retailers, the manufacturers, just dictating low-cost contracts and pushing the work down and down and down. The other wall now is the emergence of the gig economy. And it's ripping standards out. So the good actors are getting literally squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And, and in, in road transport, of course, that does is actually a life or death matter. And, you know, they're doing everything they can, the heroes, aren't they? They put the... Remember, Han Solo puts that bar up and tries to stop the walls coming in, you know. Come, it's a bit like doing an enterprise agreement with your, with your major company. We'll put, the, we'll put the enterprise agreement up, we'll put the bar up and see what happens. But, of course, this pressure is irresistible and the, and the bar just snaps. So we have to do something different. And um, something different is where we are with this government, really potentially being able to do something different. Why do we have to do something different? Well... Had 100 truck drivers killed in the last two years. That's just the truck drivers. That's one a week, basically. One worker a week is being killed uh, in transport. 1,301 Australians have been killed since the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal was pulled down and the Coalition put nothing in its place. Um, and we've had 14 gig workers that we know about that have been killed in the last four years having to rush to do their work because they're pushed outside of the normal protections, as, uh, as Michelle has said. Gig companies were born through deliberately pushing workers outside of the protections that we built up for generations in our country. Protections for employees. Why do we protect employees? Because they're highly reliant on those that engage them because their work is dictated, because they have no, no call over price over how the work is performed, where the work is performed. It sounds like a gig worker. But our archaic laws are now often saying, no, if you go to the court, the court's going to say they're not an employee, they're an independent contractor. It's a massive loophole and it's one that we need to fix. We've all become accustomed to gig services. We're not saying gig services can't be there. And we're not saying that we're not willing to deal with these terms and conditions in a slightly different way. We can. But, you know, we can't let this continue. So, so there's a few things in play. There's multi-employed bargaining, of course. There's some road transport um, legislation that's, um, that's foreshadowed um, that will um, put back in play those key elements that, in a sense, are not controversial. We now have a wall of consent from transport companies, clients, even gig companies themselves are saying that we need to stabilise the market because they know that they can only exist within a stable market. Breathtakingly, gig companies are now saying to us, we want a stable market because there are other competitors that are coming in and undercutting us. Well, that's always going to happen if you leave the market in an unsustainable position. It literally is cannibalising itself. And so we want those stabilisers put back in place. Yes, we do want the capacity to be able to set standards for non-employee workers. Yes, we do want to be able to have 
um, the Fair Work Commission sets standards in contract supply chains, impose obligations, rights in respect of those that don't even employ workers because they're the ones that are actually imposing the standards on this industry. We've got great support for that. Um, it's almost unanimous support, to be honest. Uh, and then there's the detail about what the, re the legislation looks like. You know, just when you think um, you're at the most hopeless, when you think that the compactor's there, you, thank goodness you've got C-3PO and R2-D2 on the outside. <laughs> They're just about to hit the right button. Well, I'm not saying that we're robots. I'm not saying that it's Star Wars, but what I'm saying is that it is an incredible moment in time for us. Um, we've got the moment to turn the key to stop the compactor and then push it back the other way. Um, and if we don't do it now, quite literally, it's going to be too late. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline. And text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Um, who thinks that uh, Michael Caine's a Star Wars fan from that uh, last response? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was about to go through the whole film. Um, okay. Um, what I want to talk about now is uh, the long-term focus for the trade union movement. Um, and so, you know, nothing can be off the table in this conversation. We're all amongst friends. And to you, Michelle, first. And I, to be honest, I hate asking this question, and I reckon you probably are sick. The premise of this question is probably, you're probably sick and tired of hearing this. It's talking about the, de the decline of union membership in terms of density. We all know the, the, the stats. Um, you know, 1992, it was 41% density. It's down 12.5% in 2022 as of the ABS stats. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me that I thought was interesting was workers in their 20s, the density was around at 5 to 7%. Um, you know, young people are the future of our movement. Uh, I want to get an idea from you as, as sort of a leader of the national union movement. Um, what do we need to do to attract young people into the union movement? Uh, now that we've got a Labor government, can we start to change, you know, we talk about change the rules, but can we start to change the culture and the conditions that, that makes it easier for young people to join a union? What, what are your thoughts and reflections on that and going forward? Well, the first thing I'd say is, no, I, I absolutely think we should talk about it. I think one of the problems is we don't talk about it enough um, because... I mean, I believe in unionism, and I think that if you look around the world, those countries that have the best rights and conditions for workers are ones where workers are organised and improve rights and conditions and just safety, surviving at work, come when workers organise together and join unions. So it's not a sort of esoteric thing about, wouldn't it be nice to have more union members? It's about the sort of society we have and the recognition we give to the people that do the hard work that keep it ticking over. And so it's fundamentally important that we organise workers. And so the fact that fewer workers are organised now than in our history has got to be something we talk about all the time because it's the great challenge of unionists today. And when I think about those figures for young people... Um, what I know we're doing is that we're trying to understand it. Because I reckon one of the things that we've done not as well as we could have 
is that when we talk about why aren't workers joining unions, is we talk to people who are currently union members. We talk to ourselves about it. And we all have really strong opinions about it. <laughs> but we're all union members, right? We have really strong opinions about it. And what we've got better at over the last few years is talking to people who aren't union members and asking them about why they're not. And we've done some great work understanding better about young people in particular. And, and of course, what you want as a worker when you're entering the workforce is actually really different than what you want as a worker in the middle of your working life or at the end of it. And we've also had a bit of a tendency to just treat everybody the same. And so we've got better at understanding the different things people look for um, as working people, depending their age and where they are, as well as the industry and sector. We've always been pretty good at understanding that what might be most important for a truck driver is different to a textile worker and different, again, to someone who works um, in a nurse or a school. But we weren't as good about understanding that sort of journey of life about when you're starting off work and then needle towards the end. So we're getting better at understanding that. And we're also getting better at, under, at sort of breaking down more different groups of workers. And, you know, for example, migrant workers, people who haven't long been in the country, have a different sense of what's important for them and their priorities than someone who's been here for a lifetime. So understanding that, let alone speaking the, lang the right language to people, when I say language, I mean it in the broader sense, both literal languages in terms of languages other than English, um, but also, of course language of your generation. Um, so one of the things we've found about young people is that as unionists, we often talk to workers about joining the union about what it's going to be like when things go really bad, right? Like we go straight to the catastrophe um, about, well, and we sort of assume there's going to be terrible things that are going to happen to you. And partly that's because we know that often bad things do happen and work can be dangerous and it can be unfair and people can get ripped off. But if, for a lot of younger people starting jobs, they're pretty optimistic about starting work. They actually think, yeah, that's great. I've got a job and I'm going to get treated well and this is going to be good. <coughs> and so for us to come in and say, no, it's, you're wrong, it's going to be bad, <laughs> is not a really good place to start. So we are understanding that better than we used to. And some of the issues that uh, matter for younger workers is about, well, how am I going to get an opportunity to have a career and improve and advance and get different opportunities in work and in the job that I've got? So they want to know about how does that work? How do I you know, get to stay here and get to learn more and get more opportunities? They want to know about their rights. You know, is it right that I'm being paid this much when I work on a Saturday? So really basic information about rights. I didn't mention wage theft before. And of course, what we know about younger workers is they're much more likely to be subject to wage theft, just not even getting their legal minimum. So they want information about, should I be paid this much? Should I be forced to work that many hours? Do I have a say about my roster? And then the other thing they're interested in is, is that issue about rostering and, and um, time and hours and breaks. So really that sort of basic information. And then the last thing I'd add is, is safety. You know, do I have to do that? If I get told to do that, do I have to do it? Mm. So getting better at thinking about those issues and how we talk about them is important. The other thing we know is 
technology. Like we had, we took a really long time as a union movement to adapt. We're a lot better at it now, and a lot of unions are doing some pretty exciting work on this. I was talking to a, um, a, a, one of our union organisers earlier today about how excited he is that he now can sign people up by them scanning a QR code, <laughs> you know. And, of course, he's excited, as he should be, because that's what we've got to do. Like, why was it that you could join nearly everything else, do everything else in life by scanning a QR code and you couldn't join a union? So, you know, getting our technology right, making it easy and clear. The other thing we know when we talk to younger workers is some of them don't know what unions are, but even the ones that do know what we are don't know how to join. So making joining easy, quick, simple, in the same way as so many other things are easy to join or sign up to, is a, is a real, uh, is something that a lot of great work is happening on. And, and of course, how we show our relevance. Um, and the issues that are most important to younger workers, cost of living, completely up there. They're paid less, they're in more insecure work, so of course the cost of living crisis is extreme. They're in rent, properties, rents are going up, you know, like all of those things are, are top of mind. But then not that much far behind it is the climate crisis. Um, and they're really concerned about the future and what does it mean and what, what's happening. So the fact that unions uh, are so critically engaged and involved in how we respond to um, the crisis in our climate is something that we should be proud of. I mean, we are part of this response in a really important way, but we don't always communicate that because, uh, it, you know, some people like to present us in a certain way that isn't really about who we are. And, of course, we care about and are working hard for a just transition and the jobs of workers that have worked, done really important hard work keeping the lights on in this country and powering us for generations. But we're also working hard to make sure that we're creating and making government and private industry invest in new jobs for the future that are not just going to be um, poor quality jobs, but jobs that will mean that we do have renewable energy, that we do manufacture here, that we don't just dig things up and send it out of the country, that do we diversify our economy in a way where we are both dealing with reducing emissions and reaching the targets we have to reach for um, our world, but also that we're creating good quality jobs as part of that. So it's, there's a really good story to tell there about what we're doing as part of that campaign that matters so much to working people. So there's some of the things that I think are important, but I suppose I'd sum up by saying we're listening more. Um, we're getting better at using different mediums to communicate. Um, you know, a lot of your, your younger people, of course, uh, use mediums to communicate that are not the same as older workers. So we're getting better at that. We've got a lot more to do, but I'm going to end where I started, which is we should be talking about this every day mm. um, because it is the huge challenge for us uh, because organising workers is not only what delivers better pay and conditions and rights and safety for working people, it's also what delivers 
a better society and a better world. And it's a pretty great mission to have. Michael, if I can turn to you, I, I think you and I had a, we did a whole episode late last year uh, on the aviation industry. I think it was off the back, I flew to Europe and they lost my bags and I just needed to get some shit off the liver. <laughs> I was pretty pissed off. Anyway, so you and I had a bit of back and forth and it was a very therapeutic uh, conversation, uh, particularly centred around Qantas. I'm interested to get your thoughts on the direction of the aviation industry and where it needs to go long term. Oh, you don't want me to speak about Qantas, do you? <laughs> <laughs> By means. Um, look, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a few really important things here um, to note. The first is um, I am going to just say a few things about the Joyce administration because um, it's really important. I know you're laughing. Um, it's, really, it's really important to say it uh, because there's a misconception, I think a community misconception now that um, Joyce has fueled that... Um, aviation is in the dire straits it's in because of the pandemic. Well, no, it's, it's, it's not. Of course, the pandemic hasn't helped. But neither did ash from a volcano or SARS or any other of those events that we know will hit aviation on an ongoing basis. We just don't know when. Pandemic was one of those. Big one, one of those. But aviation isn't crippled because of the pandemic. Aviation is crippled because of Alan Joyce. And I'm, going to tell, right. and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. He came from a low-cost carrier overseas. He came in, he set up just a low-cost carrier. In 2007, before he arrived at Qantas, um, Qantas workforces um, uh, in their various iterations, so ground services, cabin crew, pilots, catering staff, etc., had just done their enterprise agreement, EA7, EBA7, they called it, and... Nearly all of those workers in 2007 were engaged directly by Qantas Airlines Limited. Directly engaged, most of them permanent, a chunk of them part-time, but most of them permanent, permanently engaged. Alan Joyce came in. Now, the, the ink wasn't even dry on the agreements and he decided to set up internal labour hire companies and put out the edict to management that no one was again to be hired directly to Qantas Airlines Limited, but to the internal labour hire companies at lower terms and conditions. And when an internal labour hire company um, managed to organise itself and get reasonable terms and conditions, he'd create another one and engage all new starters on that. So we're talking about fixing the loopholes or closing the loopholes. Um, that was loophole number one. And the, the sum total of that is that he set up 17 subsidiaries and there are now 22 external companies. Yeah, sure. That is, and, and he calls them all Qantas workers. But of course, it's, it's a splintering, a complete splintering of work and a downward spiral of working conditions. So loophole number one. Loophole number two, he grounds the airline. Very modest industrial action in 2011, red ties. 20 hours of industrial action by the TW over six months. It's almost embarrassing. And that modest industrial action was the pretext for him to shut down, ground the company. Why did he ground the company? He grounded the company so that he could inflict upon Qantas the requisite economic damage to be able to found the case in the Fair Work Commission that economic damage had been caused to the company and therefore to the economy so that industrial action could be closed down. He created the damage so that he could say that industrial action 
um, could be closed down. Loophole number two, loophole number three. He uses the, the freezing effect of that grounding on workers' willingness to take industrial action to then just impose his will on the next two or three sets of enterprise agreements. He says, we're going to freeze your wages, or we're going to give you 1%. Oh, hang on, we might give you a $5,000 payment at the end of the agreement, as long as you don't take industrial action as we're negotiating the agreement after. And, of course, that works. And the result of that suppression is, you know, people's base wages low, superannuation, tens of thousands of dollars never realised, etc., etc., Loophole number three, because, of course, we challenged this in the courts and the courts said, no, it's, it's OK. He's managed to bribe his way to freezing and suppressing wages. Um, and then, of course, what he hopes will be loophole number four is the illegal sacking of 1,700 of our people, TWU workers, ground handlers, uh, under the cover of the pandemic. Um, and... Um, Two federal court cases have said that's illegal. They've gone to the High Court now to argue what? To argue a loophole. To say that, oh, no, we definitely meant to sack them. If you reinstate them, court, we'll sack them again. We definitely meant to sack them. And, yes, we sacked them, um, you know, because they were going to bargain and because they might have taken industrial action. Yes, High Court, that, we did that. But don't worry, it wasn't illegal because... A workplace right doesn't crystallise until after the nominal expiry date. So this is the argument before the High Court. Another attempt at another loophole. That is the legacy that Alan Joyce has left us. And of course, the exodus of all of that experience out of um, Qantas, an additional 6,000 people made redundant, an over-redundancy during the pandemic, means that we've been left with not enough experienced people and when we want to attract them back, we're left with the terms and conditions that he created since 2007, which is so poor that no one wants to do the job. So please, please, because I'm going to have a conniption, <laughs> go out and tell everyone that this pandemic is not the issue. Alan Joyce's management strategies, deliberate management strategies, and manipulation of the system is the issue. So where do we go from here as I wind up? Where we go from here is that um, and it goes to this question too about how we attract people and how we get them engaged in um, uh, struggles for the future. You know, people, people are reluctant, um, quite logically, um, to be taking action or getting very aggressive at the instant company that engages them. That's always our struggle as, as union officials. How are we going to get people to stand up and take that action? And it's really hard in this splintered economy with all these different companies all over the place. So what we have to do is we have to, have to figure out a way and, and give an ambition for workers to lift their eyes above their instant company and think about, well, what is the fight that we have to have together to reset our industries? It goes to that, that point again about we have to have stable industries if we're going to have secure jobs. And in aviation, what we knew in the pandemic is Alan Joyce was creating medical policy. Scott Morrison was just agreeing with what he said. There were no strings attached to all of the $2.7 billion that were thrown Qantas's way. That can never happen again. We need a decision-making body in aviation, a safe and secure skies commission, that will make um, decisions about aviation, including in relation to workers, that are in the community interest, in passengers' interests, and not just the profit interests of um, you know, shareholders and CEOs. That, that is really critical, and I think that's a fight worth having. That's huge. Yep. 
Uh, Michelle, I want to um, get a sense from you. I, you know, being the, the national president of the ACT, I assume you do get to travel overseas a bit and meet with trade union members around the world. And myself, I always have an intellectual curiosity about well, what are folks doing overseas? Where are they? What are they learning from their experiences? Um, and I just want to get an idea from you about what have you gathered on your travels to see how trade unions are grappling with the challenges that they're facing. Uh, and is there any of these things that we can bring back home and import into the work that we're doing every day in workplaces? Thanks, Stephen. And, and I do get that honour to represent us um, internationally. And uh, I, I often think that it's such a... a rich vein um, for us to be able to spend time with unionists in different places in the world and hear and about what they're doing and the struggles they face. And, and of course, the obvious thing that always strikes me is how much the struggles are the same wherever you are in the world, but then also how significant some of the differences are. You know, I, I regularly meet with workers that are risking their lives um, for being unionists mm. and organising workers being killed um, or being sent to jail. We had um, uh, Chita, who's an activist from uh, Cambodia, who was in Australia just last November for the International Trade Union Congress. And she uh, met with us there. We got her to Canberra to meet with some of the... Um, government ministers and their advisers and she flew back to Cambodia and they were meeting her when she got off the plane and locked her up and she's still in jail mm. and she's been sentenced to two years jail and that's because she's organised a strike of casino workers in Cambodia. Mm. That's her crime. Um, so it strikes me that the issues are so similar but then of course we think we have it tough, but it brings you back down to earth about how courageous some of the work organising workers in some countries in the world are. I think there is there's such big cultural differences that uh, we often think about and talk about. So, for example, when you go to Europe, they have this thing called social dialogue. And what they mean when they say social dialogue is that it's when unions, employers... Uh, and governments get together and sort of work out what's good for the country. Now, that sounds like a really good idea. Uh, they don't think it's radical. It's sort of... It's sort of... In sh it's what's that? Anarchy, exactly. Um, it's sort of enshrined in all of these institutions. They just think it's normal, um, which is why when, the, when I was telling them that we were having a problem just getting multi-employer bargaining as a law, they were scratching their head and saying, well, how do you do anything? Like, how do you, how do you work with employers properly? Our employers want this because they know that they've got commonality in an industry. So if you're in a particular industry or sector, like Michael's describing about transport, there's all these connections. Now, we're not always going to agree, and it's very important for all the reasons we started talking about earlier about power and how you get better balance and rights for workers that we never think we're all going to sit around and easily um, agree on every issue. But there are issues that we have such common um, interest in. The skills of workers, you know, people being well-trained, being able to work safely, being able to, you know, get the job done in a way where they have all the skills and training and support and um, safety around them to do the job is in everybody's interests. Um, being able to think about uh, going back to the climate 
change issues. Being able to work together to say, if you look, for example, what happened in Germany when they closed coal mines in Germany and coal-fired power, there was not one forced redundancy. And there was not one forced redundancy because the unions and the employers and the government got together and said, the only way we can do this in any sort of just and fair way is to do it where we recognise and respect the workers who've been doing these jobs and the communities they live in, and we create a path for the new jobs, new skills and opportunities that is not bullshit, you know, that is real. Um, and, and they were set about doing it. They set about actually doing it. And so I do think that in Australia it's... There's something that is a very weird sort of... Um, and, and it was really fed and, and fuelled by the previous government's hatred of unions and organised labour. Uh, but this very weird notion that somehow um, the voice of workers, if you take it out of the equation, it doesn't matter, that you'll still get good decisions made. And what we've seen time and time again is that if you silence workers, if you don't get the organised representative voice of workers through unions talking about how good jobs are created, talking about skills and training, talking about our response to the climate crisis, talking about all of these things where superannuation, you know, what a great example, which is the sort of, again, sits there as a fantastic Australian example of us creating something that the previous government tried to tear down mm. and destroy, not because it wasn't working. It's the envy of the world um, in terms of our superannuation system, but because they ideologically hated the idea that there was this uh, joint exercise of governance and um, industry funds where workers, unions and employers were together saying... Let's do something about making sure people can retire with dignity in Australia. So I, I do think there is things that we can learn about, never pretending that we're all going to agree on everything, but identifying those things where we can work together and have um, systems and institutions and bodies set up in a way where workers' voices are engineered into it. Not an afterthought, not, oh, by the way, what do you think? but recognising the great value and the better quality of decisions that are made when working people's expertise, um, knowledge and, and wisdom is part of the decision-making. Uh, we're getting the we are getting the wind up, uh, so it's a nice way to end on a on a positive and a hopeful yeah. note. Um, before we go, can I tell you one thing? Yes, I've got please. a message from Mel saying she's so sorry. She's been standing at the side of the stage for at least forty five minutes mm. trying to get to do her bit on, in the conference floor. There we go. So her apologies. That's right. Uh, us Donnellys are often in demand, so uh, <laughs> I'll just have a word with Mum about that tonight. <laughs> we're not related. Um, okay. Uh, just, to, just a reminder before we go uh, that Social Democratic is recording another podcast tomorrow at 3.30, so the same time. It's on modern campaigning. We're going to be joined with, by Kate Flanders, Eloise Young and uh, Nadia Montague. Uh, and then on Saturday morning at 10am, I'm running a seminar on community organising and we're going to be going through a case study of a campaign that we ran last year where we took over the uh, Hawthorne Football Club. 
uh, and knocked off Jeff Kinnett. So uh, please uh, join us for those as well. Um, but before we do, can uh, we thank our two guests, uh, Michelle O'Neill and Michael Kane. Thanks. Thank Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.